It's a joy to be with you this morning. It's a joy to open God's Word with you this morning as we, uh, as we just remember uh, what Scott was saying this morning. The, the church is growing in Albania. It's growing around the world, and it's, it's a joy to kind of think together this morning through what the Scripture has to say about some of that stuff. So as, as Dom said, my name is John Paul. I'm, uh, for those of you I haven't had the, the privilege of meeting you, at, you yet, I'm a, I'm a member here at Grace Church of the Valley. And I also have served as one of our equipping class teachers, and most recently, as Dom mentioned, uh, we were approved by the elders of our church to be sent as missionaries to Uganda. Uh, and what we'll, what we'll be doing there is working in development and also training pastors, and it's, it's a joy to be going. I'm very grateful for the elders' willingness to invite me to share with you from God's Word this morning. It's, it's a joy for me to open God's Word, to study it, and to share with you, um, and as a new missionary being sent by our church, I, surprise, surprise, have been uh, thinking about missions and reading about missions and studying things about missions, and I found uh, that there's actually a book in the Bible that teaches us about how to send missionaries. And uh, I am embarrassed to say I hadn't really thought about it quite like that before, (laughs) uh, before studying this week. So if you would be willing, can you please turn in your Bibles to 3 John, if you are Looking at the Pew Bible, the page is 1026. Uh, We're going to look at 3 John. Um, As you turn there in your Bibles, let me give you a little bit of background before we we read the text here. So, it's written by the Apostle John. He's an elder at this point. He's walked with Jesus. He's witnessed the ascension. He's been faithful to Jesus for his life. Um, He probably writes from the city of Ephesus to the surrounding churches, churches that knew that he had been with Jesus, okay, fledgling churches that he had probably helped guide and direct, and obviously he was, he was helping them now. In the first letter of John that we have preserved for us in 1 John, he warns the church against folks that are trying to deceive them, teachers that would tell people that Jesus hadn't really come in the flesh, right, this deception that's kind of sneaking into the church, and John's like, hey, watch out for these guys, they're trying to deceive you. Keep away from them. Keep them away from you. In 2 John, these false teachers that John had warned the church about are not only infiltrating churches, but they're infiltrating homes. This is a serious problem. So John writes the believers to warn them about accepting teachers into their homes. Of course, Satan would want to destroy the home, so Pastor John is writing to warn them against this, right? Same issue that was coming up in the churches. Then we come to 3 John. And this time, rather than false teaching, Pastor John deals with some different issues. Uh, this letter is to an individual named Gaius, and we don't know much about Gaius. There, there are a few other Gaiuses in the New Testament, but it's pretty unlikely that this Gaius is the same as any of the other Gaiuses in the New Testament. Um, it's a common name. Uh, so we have this short letter to Gaius. Uh, it's only about 220 words long, by my count. <laughs> um, but it gives us a, a snapshot of church life as the elder addresses specific issues. So now, let's... Take up and read 3 John. I will read aloud. You follow along. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. 
Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers, and also stops those who want to, and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God, whoever does evil has not seen God." Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart this morning... Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So our plan for today is to look through the text verse by verse to see what God is teaching us, to see a little bit about the context, and then we'll finish with some principles and some applications. That's kind of the plan for today. So starting with the first section, verses 1 through 4, this describes the elder's joy in Gaius' obedience. The elder's joy in Gaius' obedience. Elder John loves Gaius. He has a lot of affection for him, right? He says, whom I love in truth, or maybe whom I truly love. There might be a pun there. Um, he says, we, basically, we share in a common faithfulness to the truth of Jesus, that he's come in the flesh, that he's accomplished redemption, that he's ascended to the Father. This is the truth that we heard at the beginning. We still hold. John loves this guy. He's a, he has a lot of affection for him. Um, verse 2, the elder's prayer for Gaius is very simple, but it's actually a little bit surprising. John knows that Gaius's soul is well. So he prays boldly about his body and his dealings, that they would be well, just like his soul. How does John know that his soul is well, right? Well, because of his obvious obedience. He has a reputation for generous hospitality, serving God by serving God's people. You don't serve joyfully if your soul's a mess, right? You don't serve sacrificially because soul sickness makes us selfish. We don't want to serve when our souls are not well. So Gaius may be weak or strong in body, that's not clear, but his soul is very evidently quite healthy. And John's heart is that Gaius' work and his body would be healthy, just like his soul. In verse 3, we need a little more explanation here, so we're kind of getting into it here. Um, Who are the brothers, and what is Gaius' truth? He says, I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in truth. So who are these brothers? Well, apparently there were brothers, probably missionaries that were sent by John, that went to wherever Gaius was ministering in his church, and who had been with Gaius, and then had returned back to John. They came back to John, and they told John about Gaius's truth. Well, what is Gaius's truth? Is this like my truth, your truth, we all have our own truth? No. That might appeal to our flesh or our postmodern ears, but that is obviously not what John is talking about. The next phrase clarifies his meaning. He says, as indeed you are walking in the truth. This means that Gaius is living in agreement with what the gospel teaches. It's pretty simple. He's not a hypocrite. He has integrity, right? He, he's the kind of Christian that makes you think, I think that's 
actually how Jesus would act if he were here. So this is, this is such an encouragement to John because John sees Gaius as a spiritual son in the faith, obviously. obviously. We, don't, we don't know if John was the one who discipled him or who taught him or even maybe raised him, um, but there was some interaction between John and Gaius. Uh, he sees him as a son in the faith, and this just encouraged John's heart a lot. Um, and in verse 4, it's such an encouragement, in fact, that he considers, John considers Gaius' obedience to Christ his greatest joy. He says, I have no greater joy. That's really high. Like, that's his greatest joy ever? Yeah, it is. It's, it's almost like John is sitting there in Ephesus writing his letter to Gaius, and he stops, and he looks out his window in the little town of Ephesus, and he just thinks in his heart, he thinks in his heart, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Ah, yes, I'm going to encourage Gaius with that. I have no greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth. That's kind of what it's like right there, right? Um, it's kind of this, like, statement of fact. Um, and what, what is that joy? Well, it's the joy of seeing Christ formed in the life of his people, right? It's the joy of seeing greedy people become generous or angry people become kind and selfless. It's the joy of seeing lustful hearts purified. It's the joy of lazy people becoming hard workers in the Lord. It's the joy of seeing proud people become joyful servants. It's the joy of seeing lying lips now planting seeds of grace and truth. That's the joy that John has, right? And in fact, there's even more joy for you if you've invested years of prayer and affection and instruction and correction in the lives of these people, right? You have more joy about that. Um, and even if you haven't done that, you yourself have probably experienced maybe just a taste of this. Even if you haven't directly discipled someone, it's still a joy to see Christians walking in the truth. So, for example, two weeks ago, right outside on the patio, right, we got to witness five baptisms, right? Um, I was, my heart was overflowing with joy when I watched Josh Peterson walk up to the microphone, stand, proclaim the goodness of God and his allegiance to Jesus Christ, walk into the baptismal, get baptized, climb out of the baptismal, and step off to the side. Two years ago, when Josh had his accident, um, it was my job, along with Brent Lundy, to go to Road 48 with the pressure washer and to clean the blood off the road and the police markings from that accident. And that day, I didn't really know everything that was going on. I didn't know if Josh would live. I didn't know. I had no idea what was going on. But out there on Road 48, I have a vivid memory. We're out there. The sun is shining. We're pressure washing the road. And in my heart, I'm praying for Josh. Lord, save this boy. God, save his life. Preserve his life. Save his soul. Right? Rescue him. I'm praying for Josh. Not long after that, um, Pastor Scott had Josh come up in front of the church in the little theater, if you remember this, and we prayed for him as a church, and we prayed that God would heal his body, that God would uh, bless their family and take care of them. Do you remember this? Were, was anybody there that day? Yeah, yeah, we were there. That was, that's a family moment, right? We're praying for Josh, right? We're praying for him. Um, and uh, <laughs> two weeks ago, when Josh stood up and was baptized, it encouraged my heart so, so much, right? Not only because of the tremendous physical healing that God has worked in his body, but obviously the supernatural work of God in his heart. Did you hear what Josh said? I quote, he said, I now know that my broken body is a part of Jesus' plan. Let me read that again. I now know that my broken body is a part of Jesus' plan. You don't go through a life-changing physical accident 
and give glory and thanks to God and praise Jesus for saving you and say that unless God has done a supernatural work in your heart. That's impossible unless God has worked in your heart, right? Praise the Lord, right? No greater joy than to hear my children are walking in the truth, right? That's, that's the encouragement right there. And obviously not only them, but in Jacob's life, in Rico's life, in Blake's life, in Jared Brandon's, what encouragement. It's a joy to see people walking in the truth. John has this joy as he observes the enduring evidence of God's work in Gaius' life, okay? So this is kind of the first section, verses 1 through 4. Notice a few things about these sections. John really loves this guy. He calls him beloved uh, four times in the book, twice right here. He says, whom I love in the truth. He, he has a lot of affection for this guy. Gaius' reputation is a source of great rejoicing and delight for John. There's also a repeated idea that we haven't mentioned yet in these first four verses. Um, notice he says, whom I love in truth. He says, he's, they've testified to your truth. He's walking in truth. I have no greater joy than that my children are walking in the truth. What's the repeated word? Truth, right? It's right there. Um, what's the repeated idea? Your actions reveal that the truth has changed you, right? He's walking in truth. How is it revealed? Well, if we go on to verses 5 through 8, we're going to see how it's been revealed in Gaius' life. So in 5 through 8, John's encouragement to Gaius is to send and support workers for the truth. Send and support workers for the truth. That's, that's his exhortation. That's his encouragement to Gaius. So John describes what Gaius has been doing, but let me give you a little bit more background here to, to help it make sense in the context of this letter. The churches are fairly young. God is moving in remarkable ways to save lots of people through the preaching of the word. If you read Acts, you see these stunning accounts of how God uses his word to expand his kingdom um, through uh, the work of the Holy Spirit, through the preaching of the word, it's, it's very exciting. In fact, Paul went, he would go through preaching through an area, and then he would come back, and in Acts 14, 23, it says he appointed elders in every town where they had been. If you do the timeline on that, it's pretty short, maybe a year. So you've got these people that have just been saved, and then Paul comes back and he appoints elders. Maybe the elders have been believers for a year. Maybe, right? God is saving people, but the churches need good teaching. They need leadership. In a church like ours, Grace Church of the Valley, you have believers that have been walking with the Lord for decades. You don't want some new believer or someone who's been walking according to Christ for six months being the preacher or being an elder in the church. That's not appropriate. In fact, Paul himself warns against having new believers in leadership in the church because of the strong temptation to pride in 1 Timothy. Right? But new believer is a relative term. Right? At certain points in the history of the church, when the church is growing rapidly, many congregations are popping up, what are you going to do? Right? You've got someone that's been walking with the Lord for a year, but everyone else in the church has been walking with the Lord for three months, two months, two weeks. So what do you do? Right? Well, you have itinerant preachers. Right? After Whitfield and Wesley in the First Great Awakening there were these circuit-riding preachers. They'd get on their horse, and they'd go from church to church to church, and they'd preach, and they'd preach, and they'd preach, and they'd go to church to church and preach and preach and preach. Why? Because there's not enough preachers to fill the pulpits because these congregations are popping up all over the place. This is kind of what was happening in the early church here. They'd travel from church to church to church, preaching and teaching and training God's people. Who pays for that? Who pays for that? Those guys have to eat. They have to sleep. They have to travel. In the early church, there's no board that's supporting them. There's no long-established ministry centers, well-funded foundations that are backing them, right? Who, who is it that pays for that? Well, it's local Christians with a love for Christ and a love for his gospel and a love for his people. That's who pays for that, 
okay? Gaius is one of these hosts. He says, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. After long months of ministry, the weary missionaries arrive at Gaius' house, right? Home away from home. The lights are on, the AC's on, the beds are fresh, the fridge is stocked, and there's Gaius to warmly greet you, to carry in your bags. You rest, you're refreshed with profitable conversation and the beauty and comfort of Christian hospitality. Gaius prays for you, and he sends you on your way back out to fight back the wilds of theological confusion, right? <laughs> that's, that's what it is. This is the picture of Gaius' love. It takes effort and resources that he joyfully devotes to these brothers. That's Gaius right there, okay? But who are these brothers? Well, verse 6, strangers as they are. Gaius doesn't even know these guys. <laughs> They're strangers to him, right? But he knows they're missionaries from John, and that's enough for him. That's enough for him. So, verse 6, um, these brothers have since returned to John, and they've testified before the whole church about Gaius' love. The ministers, or the, I'm sorry, the missionaries were ministered to. The brothers are back at the home church, and they're reporting. Uh, it's like we got a report this morning from Scott, right? They're, they're reporting back to the home church. Uh, hey, thank you guys for your love. Thank you for supporting us. Thank you for helping us build our church so that we can do ministry, right? There's, there's, a, there's a reporting mechanism right there. Um, in verse 6, testify to your love before the church. That happened this morning. How, how cool is that? Um, one of the highlights from the missions trip that these guys are coming back at is, is, is Gaius' house, right? They get to be with Gaius, right? They're, they're encouraged by being with Gaius. That guy is so loving, right? That's part of their missionary report. So Elder John hears the report. He continues in his letter. Keep it up, buddy. In fact, I'm sending you some more missionaries. Can you take care of them? The new missionaries show up, and they hand Gaius a letter, and Gaius opens the letter, and he reads it, and it says, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. You will do well to send them on their, manner, on their journey in a manner worthy of God, in verse 6. This is the equivalent of saying, please, help these guys. It's not a command. It's, it's the equivalent of a request. Please, help these guys, right? It would be... A little something like this. Do you guys remember Eric and Heather Zeller? Our church, Grace Church of the Valley, supports the Zellers ministry in Dubai. Okay? They visited here last July. They gave a presentation. Um, we send them a check every single month. And many of, of you, including my family, we regularly pray for the Zellers in Dubai. Okay? They were never members in our church. Right? In fact, they're strangers to us. How did they become missionaries that Grace Church of the Valley supports? How does that happen? Well, a pastor from another church here in California solicited financial support and prayer support, obviously, for the Zellers from our church in 2016 because, well, I happen to have the email right here soliciting support from our church, and I thought I'd share it with you. It says this, Dear Scott, it may be that you already support Eric Zeller or have been exposed to his ministry, but if not, I wanted to recommend him to you and your missions department. I have been pleased with his work and have found him to be such a bright and gifted young trainer of pastors. I wouldn't normally present a missionary to you unsolicited, and Eric did not ask me, nor does he know that I am. But in this case, his sending church may be soon folding, and with that, a good segment of his support. We are upping our financial support for him here at our church, and I thought you and your church might want an opportunity to consider partnering with Eric. I have attached his ministry perspectives. I hope all is well with you and yours. There's a commendation 
a commendation of Eric's commitment, the worthiness of the man, the worthiness of the work, right, and his motivation. It's a request to consider supporting him. That's the feel of 3 John. That's the feel of this letter from John to Gaius. That's what we have right here. In verse 7 and 8, John lays out basically three reasons that Gaius should send and support missionaries. Reason number one, they've gone out for the sake of the name. Their motivation is right. Number two, they've accepted nothing from the Gentiles. They are not making any money on this. And we should support them, number three, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. We're going to come back to this section uh, when we make some applications, but notice for now that the lives of the senders are bound up together with the missionaries. They're fellow workers for the truth, right? The truth is, if that churches don't send missionaries, they generally won't go. And if missionaries do go that are not supported by the church and supported by individual believers, they'll spend so much time trying to provide for their own basic necessities that frequently they will have little time to do the work that they went to do. So, by way of example, living in a foreign place, it takes much more time and energy. It just does. It takes more time. Um, we are preparing to move to Uganda. I've been there twice in the last four months to try to check things out and figure out how things are going. And, here, and one of the things I'm trying to figure out is how to drive when we're there. We've got to be able to drive. Um, here's what I learned. They drive on the left side of the road. The steering wheel is on the right side of the car. The shifter is still in the middle, but the clutch is on the left side, so the pedals are the same. It's kind of weird. Okay, I've got to figure that out. Um, to buy a car in Uganda, you should really import it because the cars there, the used cars there, are totally beat to pieces because the roads are so bad. Importing a car requires a third-party merchant to help you do that. The tax on an imported car is 100%. 100%. Right? <laughs> you can buy insurance, but you need to go in person to the insurance office. You, can get a, you should get a driver's license, but you'll have to take trips to the DMV and complete all kinds of paperwork and process, not unlike here. Um, be careful getting your car serviced because several shops will take good parts off your car, replace them with junk parts, and give you your car back. <laughs> right? Kind of uh, not so good. So, okay, it's going to take me some time to find a car, to buy a car, to insure a car, to get licensed to drive a car, and then figure out how in the world to drive this car on the left-hand side of the road ah, without killing myself or anybody else. Um, now, mercifully, God has provided a car for us already, uh, so that's that's really helpful. But the point is, living somewhere different takes a lot more work in general. It takes a lot more work. It takes a lot more time. It takes a lot of resources just to figure out basic living stuff. If a missionary, if the missionary's time is taken up with fundraising to get a reliable vehicle so he can get to the people that he's been sent to share Christ with, less time is going to be devoted to proclaiming the name of Christ. Make sense? Yeah, right? So Gaius, however, however, was commended for the support of these missionaries. He's expressed Christ's love to the brothers. The mission of God is moving forward because missionaries are going out for the sake of the name and men like Gaius are supporting them. And yet, and yet, not all was well in Gaius' church. Verses 9 through 12. Diotrephes, the detractor, and Demetrius, the devoted. Diotrephes, Diotrephes the detractor, Demetrius the devoted. So not surprisingly, in a fast-growing church movement without enough pastors to fill the pulpits, there were these itinerant pre preachers, as we mentioned. There were good ones, and there were bad ones, right? There's no email from a trusted ministry leader commending the good preachers. You couldn't pick up the phone and, and call the church in the next city over and say, hey, how did, how, did, uh, how did Dom do over there? Is he legit? Can we trust him? 
Is he going to say some weird stuff in that pulpit? Like, I don't, I don't want to expose our church to some weirdo, right? That's not good. But you couldn't do that, right? There's no website to go back and listen to some messages and check this guy out. This presents a problem. When a missionary shows up to teach and you are hungry for good teaching, how do you know? How do you know, right? Well, the bad ones are really bad. If you turn one page back, in 2 John, verse 7. Many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is a deceiver and the Antichrist. Whoa, Antichrist, deceiver, that sounds pretty serious. Verse 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Wow, so how do you know? Well, Someone tells you, someone that you trust tells you, which brings us to Diotrephes in verse 9. Diotrephes, rather than expelling the heretical preachers, which he should be doing, right, he's refusing to welcome the missionaries that were sent by the Apostle John, right? What, and um, what, what does the text say? There, there are several things that are very clear in here, so let's just look through the text. Verse 9, he likes to put himself first. He loved to be first. Me, 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 I, 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 I. I want to talk about me. I want to talk about I, right? <laughs> That's his song. Does not acknowledge the apostles' authority in verse 9. Uh, he's talking wicked nonsense against the apostles, right? Don't want any threats to my firstness, so let's just lower the apostles in the eyes of everybody. You know, you really need to use discernment when you read what Elder John wrote, the apostle John. He's getting kind of old, might have a few screws loose. You know, just these seeds of doubt, right? That's what he's doing. He's talking wicked nonsense against the apostles, right? And very obviously, he refuses to welcome the brothers in verse 10. Not only that, he stops those who want to welcome the brothers and excommunicates them. He's kicking them out of the church, right? What is the source of all this damaging behavior? Is it doctrinal differences, personal differences, liturgical differences? The text doesn't tell us any of that. We do know, however, it's very clear. Diotrephes loved to put himself first. And that root of evil, that evil root of self-promotion, grew strong in the fertile soil of self-importance, right? The poisonous fruits of abuse of authority were damaging the church. The problem was big enough that it actually became the apostles' problem. So Diotrephes had some kind of leadership position. He had some kind of influence, obviously, because he's kicking people out of the church. You can't just do that if you're just some Joe guy in the pew, right? He had some kind of leadership in the church, but he failed to meet a clear requirement for church leadership. He must be hospitable, 1 Timothy 3.2, right? Not only is he inhospitable, he's excommunicating people who are hospitable. This is terrible, right? It's likely, in fact, that he's probably putting a lot of pressure on Gaius himself because Gaius is the one who's being hospitable and he's supporting these missionaries. Um, and in fact, that might explain why there's so much affection and encouragement in this letter, right? If Gaius is getting the heat from Diotrephes, Elder Pastor John wants to put his arm around Gaius and say, like, hang in there, buddy. Hang in there, right? That's kind of what I think might be going on there. Um, well, it's such a big deal that John is going to deal with it. Pastor John is going to deal with it publicly. Why does he have to do it publicly? He says he's going to bring it up. He has to do it publicly because that's the way that Jesus set it up. In the worst situations, in the ugliest situations, it has to be dealt with publicly. 
That's the way Jesus set it up. In Matthew 18, you know this. If your brother sins against you, go uh, approach him privately. If you can't win him over, take somebody else. If you still can't win him over, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church. 1 Timothy 5.20, in the context of church leaders, Paul writes, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. Why is this so important? Why is it such a big deal that he has to bring it up publicly? Because the credibility of the gospel is at stake. You see, if John doesn't address this, the young believers in a watching world looks and says, ah, Jesus' followers are proud and self-promoting. Jesus is probably proud and self-promoting too. Let me illustrate this. When I was much younger and more naive, I was involved in a church where one member divorced his wife. They had four daughters, the youngest of which was maybe two or three years old at the time of the divorce. I regret that I didn't honestly think that much about it at the time until an older brother in the Lord came to me and was like, dude, what is going on? What's going on with this family? This is not good. This is not right. Um, not long after that, the man shows up in church with his brand new wife. And they keep going to church, sitting right over there. Um, and as, as far as I knew, the elders didn't address him or the situation, right? The divorce is concerning. The family is going through like, you know, level 10 crisis meltdown, okay? But just as concerning, right, is the total absence of shepherding by the elders, right? It revealed the weakness of the church and the weakness that the gospel, of the gospel that the church preached, right? That's seriously concerning, right? If a church is just kind of like, huh, divorce, not a big deal. No, that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal in the eyes of God, and it should be in the eyes of the church, right? So this is why John is saying we've got to address this, and we've got to address it publicly, We've got to address it publicly. The witness of Christ is at stake, okay? Diotrephes' life was contrary to how a Christian lives, and to leave it unchecked would, to, would be to spread the lie that putting yourself first is the way that Christians live. Unlike Gaius, Diotrephes was not walking in the truth. So now verse 11. We come to verse 11. Now John has held out this example of wickedness, and he issues a direct command. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Beloved, do not imitate diatrophies, but imitate good. That's basically what he's saying. Whatever, whoever does good is from God. If he's referring to hospitality right there, the good being hospitality, he kind of broadens it out and says, good. If you're hospitable, you're from God. As in, you have a living relationship with the one who was hospitable to you when you were an enemy of his. Right? God saved you. He created you for good works that you should walk in them. When did he save you? When did God save you? But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He saved you when you were a sinner. God is hospitable, right? God is hospitable to sinners. This is important. This is, this is, we're getting close to the heart of the gospel right here which is why it's such a big deal that John has to address, okay? Whoever does evil, he goes on, whoever does evil has not seen God, probably referring to his lack of hospitality, but he broadens it out here. Are you a doer of evil? Are you a doer of evil? You have no vital saving relationship with God. It's pretty black and white. Obviously, John teaches that evil and good behavior are indicators of one's evidence or indicators of the evidence of one's relationship with God. So why does he teach Gaius this? 
Why does he include this? Do not imitate evil, imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Because he expects Gaius to make judgments between what's good and what's evil. It's not just abstract what's philosophically good, what's philosophically evil. He's actually expecting Gaius to make judgments between who is doing good and who is doing evil, right? You can't copy the good and avoid the evil unless you exercise discernment. What's good, what's evil, right? You're not equipped to do that. That's why John is equipping him to do that. And verse 12, John writes, Hey, Gaius, I've got a prime example of a good guy right here, my man Demetrius. He's got a good reputation with everyone. Even his commitment to the truth speaks well of him. And oh, by the way, we elders add our testimony, you know, you can count on what we say. That's John Paul's paraphrase of verse 12. It's possible that Demetrius was the letter carrier. Maybe he had to slip by Diotrephes to get the letter to Gaius, right? Because he's a missionary sent from John, and Diotrephes is like putting the heat on Gaius. If Gaius had never met Demetrius, John's recommendation here in verse 12 is invaluable. Okay, I can trust what this guy says. I can trust who he is. I can trust what he's doing. Um, so, John's laid out a negative example, Diotrephes. He's laid out a positive example, example, Demetrius. And between them, he's dropped this clear instruction to imitate good. In the closing of the letter, we see John's personal preference. I'd prefer a personal connection. I'd prefer a personal connection. That's, that's what John wants, verses 13 to 15. He, uh, he wants to connect with Gaius. He wants Gaius to pass his greeting on to all the friends, each by name, specifically, right? It's very personal. And you know this. When you have something important or sensitive to communicate, email can work. Phone is better. But if you can get face-to-face with somebody, it's way better. It's way better, right? That's, ask anybody in sales, and they'll tell you this, right? <laughs> right? If they can get in front of you, like, that's a win, okay? When somebody physically shows up, when they're not selling you something, um, it's much harder to believe that they don't actually care about you. They do care about you. That's why they're there, Right? John wants that personal connection. He's planning for it. He's mentioned it twice already in verse 10 and then down in verse 14. Um, so there we have it. We have a sense of John's letter to Gaius as a whole. Now let's go back. We're going to look at some specific principles and some applications. There are several areas we could dive into here, but for the sake of time, we'll, keep, we'll narrow our focus to one kind of negative principle and then five positive principles specifically about missions. Um, so... Principle number one, pride destroys God's work. Pride destroys God's work. The marks of pride in Diotrephes are obvious. He refuses to submit to spiritual authority, the Apostle John. He undermines any competing authorities in the eyes of others by slander and gossip. He's talking wicked nonsense. He refuses to welcome others who honor John and his fellow elders, and he uses his authority to protect his program of self-promotion. Right? Get that sympathizer out of here. Get him out. Right? John doesn't detail the fallout from Diotrephes' pride, but it's clear from the text that some godly, hospitable people have been asked to leave the church because they're welcoming believers. Of course, when godly people leave the church, it hurts the whole church. It hurts the whole church. Hey, uh, I haven't seen you around church for a few weeks. Is everything okay? Just wanted to check in on you. You what? One of the pastors asked you to leave the church? Why would they do that? You're one of the most hospitable, loving people that I know in our church. What is going on? All of a sudden, things get very complicated and very confusing when spiritual authority is abused, right? This puts the people who have been asked to leave the church in a very painful and confusing situation. From their perspective, 
They're thinking, man, my spiritual authority, diatrophies, has just asked me to leave the church because I'm following my conscience. What? Right? I'm doing what I think God wants me to do by being hospitable, and the pastor is putting me out of the church for this? What in the world? This conflict right here, this is enough to derail young believers, right? A baby Christian doesn't have the spiritual maturity to handle this kind of conflict. It's like ripping a sapling out of the ground and throwing it out of the field and into the lane. What are its chances of survival? Right? Not much. When this comes from a recognized spiritual authority, it's enough to confuse and discourage even more mature believers, right? Pride destroys God's work. Pride destroys God's work. Application. You may not be a leader in the church, but you don't have to be a leader in the church for pride to be destructive, right? Ask a close friend or maybe your spouse if there's any evidence of pride in you. You can't diagnose yourself because pride by its very nature is blinding, so you must have help on this. But here are some suggested diagnostic questions. What is my attitude towards authority? Are there examples in my life? If you have a problem with authority, you probably have a problem with pride, Okay. How do I talk about spiritual, government, family authority? These are the three spheres of authority that God has established. The family, civil government, and in the church. Right? What are my attitudes towards those authorities? Question number three. How hospitable am I? How interested am I in genuinely helping other people? Am I hospitable? Question four. If I do have authority myself in maybe my work or family or government or church, how am I using my position of authority? Am I using it for self-seeking ends or am I using it for love? Right? Pride destroys God's work. It's the opposite of walking in the truth. That's principle number one. Next five principles are related to sending missionaries. All right. And I will freely give attribution here to the book Missions by Andy Johnson. I drew heavily on that for these principles. It's a very helpful book and I would highly recommend it. So principle number one. Concern for missions and missionaries is normal. We're kind of back to the, the front end of the book here in 3 John. John writes that Gaius is walking in the truth. He writes that it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers. He concludes that we ought to support people like these. The Bible is clear that a desire to support and send missionaries to people that have not heard the gospel is a basic part of Christian health. It's a basic part of Christian health. Concern for missions and missionaries is normal. Principle number two, cooperation among local churches is encouraged. Look at how these brothers were strangers to Gaius. They obviously were not from Gaius' church, right? It's a good and normal thing for Gaius to host them and to send them on their way. In fact, John says Gaius ought to support them so that John's church and Gaius' church might be fellow workers for the truth. Mutual support for missionaries between churches and individual Christians is real gospel partnership that honors Christ. Cooperation among local churches is encouraged. Principle number three, knowing whom we ought to support is crucial, right? How can we know whom to support? Well, we have some, specific, some specifics here in the text that will get us quite a long way. There are people walking in the truth. Does their behavior over time reflect the character of Christ in their dealings at home, in the workplace, in the church, in civil government, in society? Is this someone that the church can say of, we are confident that in sending this person out for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, that God will be glorified? Can the church say that? 
That's really important, right? Not only the behavior, but John's letter leads us to consider the missionary motivation as well. So it's the behavior, but it's also the heart. They've gone out for the sake of the name. They're motivated by love for God and a commitment to his mission to save sinners. The thing that energizes a missionary is the name of Jesus Christ. That's what energizes a missionary. That's what motivates a missionary, right? This is why we have interviews and application processes and reference checks. Those things are valuable. The church needs to discern the hearts of those it supports. I had to fill out a lengthy and detailed application for both SOS and also for Grace Church of the Valley. Despite having been here a member for two years, despite having taught a Sunday school class for a couple years and being recently nominated a deacon, I still needed to go through that process, and that was good and right, right? That's important. That's really important. It's like, it's kind of like, in a sense, walking through security at an airport. Your documents have to be verified, right? They have to be verified. The church has to verify that the gospel stamp is on the man's life. Is he walking in the truth? Is he going out for the sake of the name? God gave the church this responsibility. Do you know how long it took for us to vet Eric Zeller? That email that we got here just a little bit ago uh, came in May of 2016. It wasn't until June of 2017 that a decision was made to support him. That's like 13 months, right? That's a long time. That is good and right because the church needs to discern the behavior and the heart of its missionaries. Knowing whom to send is crucial. What's more, John notes that these missionaries were not accepting anything from the Gentiles. He seems to mean that they're not earning money from the gospel work, so the church should supply their needs. Lots of people share the gospel, praise God, and they should, but only some have a moral claim on the church's financial support. These are men and women we call missionaries, but that support comes with strings, and it should. Most notably, a very big string called accountability, right? Accountability. Missionaries are not free agents, but they should answer to the local church for their stewardship of the support they receive. Notice in verse 6, they testified to your love before the church. There's the PowerPoint presentation, right? There's, there's the newsletter. There's the email update right there. They testified to your love before the church. They're accountable. Likewise, prayer and financial support are not the only responsibilities a church has for its missionaries. And our church is really good at this, right? Other responsibilities that a church has for missionaries are pastoral visits and communication, like it's happening right now in Albania, right? That's really important. The point is, biblical missionaries are vitally connected to the local church. That's the way that God set it up, okay? That's the way that God set it up. All right. Principle number four, support should be abundant. Support should be abundant. John doesn't leave us to wonder what our support for missionaries should be like. It should be lavish. It should be abundant. It should be in a manner worthy of God. Send them how? In a manner worthy of God. How would you send God on his way? Right? Treat missionaries like that. Jesus comes. He stays at your home on his way to continue ministry in the next town. How would you send Jesus on his way? Treat missionaries like that. The Bible repeats this idea elsewhere in Titus 3.13. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. Lack nothing. Whew, that's a pretty high bar, right? I can tell you with great joy, as a Stepanian family, we lack nothing. As of Friday, we are 100% supported by you and many other faithful Christians to go to Uganda. As of Friday, we purchased eight one-way plane tickets to Uganda for July 8th. We scheduled a container. 
We, we are on our way because of your faithful and generous support. Praise God. <laughs> Side note there. <laughs> okay? We, we are delighted uh, and so grateful for your support. So principle number five. The motivation is love for the glory of Christ. What is driving all of this? What energizes the church to send and support missionaries? What motivates missionaries to leave every familiar place, to leave a loving church family, to leave the city or the country or sometimes the hemisphere where they were born and became believers and grew up in the Lord? What motivates all this? It is all for the sake of the name. The name of Jesus Christ, that the name of Jesus Christ would be proclaimed among the nations so that more people would begin walking in the truth. More people would begin imitating good rather than evil. More people would rejoice in seeing others come to faith in Jesus Christ. More people would send more missionaries who send more missionaries. We do it all for the sake of the name. The devotion to the glory of God is the mighty engine that drives the enterprise of missions. The devotion to the glory of God is the mighty engine that drives the enterprise of missions, right? And this name is clear in Scripture. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs to it and is safe. Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Romans 10.13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How are people saved by God? By calling on the name of Jesus Christ. That's how people are saved by God. That's what motivates missions, right? It's for the sake of this that missionaries go out. It's for the sake of this name that Christians and churches support missionaries in a manner worthy of God. It's because of these faithful senders that missionaries go, which has led, in fact, to your own faith in Christ. Maybe you say, well, a missionary didn't come to me and tell me about Jesus. I, I actually just picked up the Bible and started reading one day, and God convicted my heart. Praise the Lord. Let me ask you a question about that. Was the Bible in English? I'm going to guess it probably was. And if that's the case, you might want to thank Henry Monmouth. I'm sorry, Humphrey. Humphrey Monmouth. Humphrey, yeah. He's a good guy. Uh, because it wasn't actually until the 1530s that the Bible was translated into English by this guy named William Tyndale. He was a super smart scholar in England, and he's starting to, like, translate the Bible, and he's doing his ministry. And this guy named Humphrey Monmouth gets saved in his ministry and Humphrey happens to be a businessman. He's a merchant. He owns a fleet of ships. And he decides to support uh, William Tyndale's ministry. And because of that, Tyndale is able to translate the whole New Testament and half of the Old Testament before Henry VIII cracks down on him, strangles him to death, and burns him at the stake. Right? But it was because Henry Monmouth funded him. He funded his ministry. In fact, he even provided a house for Tyndale to work in. And because of that... Uh, Miles Coverdale picked up the rest of uh, Tyndale's work and was able to finish the Old Testament and publish it. And do you know how much time and energy it takes to publish a Bible into a new language that it hasn't been published in before? It's a lot. It's a lot of time. How did he do it? Well, Monmouth supported him, right? Monmouth, he's the man. <laughs> um, in fact, he poured a ton of resources into Tyndale's work. And it was Monmouth's ships that actually took the published Bible in English around the world. You were able to get them on the ships before Henry VIII cracked down on him and, and tried to kill him. Um, now, 
Humphrey Monmouth actually ended up in prison himself. But by that time, the ships had sailed and the word of God had gone out. Now, within two years of Monmouth's and Tyndale's deaths, the king of England ordered that every parish church should have a copy of the English Bible. Within 100 years, King James ordered that a new authorized version should be released, which we know today as the King James Version of the Bible. The King James Version of the Bible carries over 80 to 90% of Tyndale's work in the King James Version, right? Far and away, far and away, the King James Version of the Bible has been the most influential book in the English language, no, no doubt about it, over a billion copies produced, published, right? It's unbelievable. Even today, every Bible that you and I pick up in English is unashamedly built on Tyndale's foundation. History remembers William Tyndale, but it has largely forgotten that the catalyst behind this massive movement of God was a generous businessman. Gaius, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Fellow workers for the truth. 